Okay, let's uh, let's go ahead and open with prayer, and then we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, Father, thank you for um, winding down the pandemic here in the United States, and we pray that it uh, would settle back into the background and just be um, like the common cold. Um, thank you for the mercy that we had the technology to deal with all of that, that we had the medical science to address it. Um, and Lord, I, uh, I want to pray again for Ukraine and for the situation going on there. Would you strengthen the Ukrainians to resist the Russian um, invasion? And um, Lord, we just pray that you would cause the Russians to demand uh, a withdrawal from, from their uh, government. And we ask for peace there, Father. Uh, Lord, as we study these important doctrines, including you, um, Lord, we pray that you'd be with us, that uh, the, the beauty of who you are would shine through this evening, and that we would see and thank you for all that you are and all that you've done for us. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, like I said, Sunday last week was a little hairy. <laughs> we kind of hopped in the deep end of the pool there. Um, we're not going to go back to that. We're, we, we did the Trinity. What we're going to do now this week and next week is look at the persons. And so this week we're going to talk about God the Father and God the Spirit. And the reason we're doing those two together is because God the Son has his own complication in that he's incarnate. And how does that work? And so that'll be that'll be tough enough. So today we'll just look at uh, God the Father and uh, God the Spirit. So there's handouts up here if you want to grab one. Um, and not a whole bunch of slides this time, more talking than sliding uh, so, first of all, God the Father, um, when we talk about God the Father, he, he's revealed as the Father in the Scriptures, but not so much in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Trinity was kind of hidden. It wasn't really clear how these these different persons related or who they were. Um, we did hear about God the Father, but there's only a couple of places where he refers to himself as Father. And in the Old Testament, it wasn't the father of Jesus because Jesus hadn't been born yet. It was usually God, the father of uh, Israel, is the way he'd reveal himself as father. And then we'd hear about his spirit, which we'll talk about in a little while. And then we never really heard about the son as the son. The closest we got was the angel of the Lord would do things that angels would not normally do, including receive worship. And so we, we tend to think that might be the son that was doing that. Um, but it's not really clear in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, we don't get God as Father a whole bunch. Um, when we get to the New Testament, we get him revealed as Father a whole lot. Jesus spends a lot of time talking about God as our Father. And uh, most, I think the most um, clear example of that is when he was asked, how do we pray? Teach us to pray like John did. And the first words he says is, our Father. So um, you wouldn't hear in the Old Testament, you wouldn't hear them call God our Father. That was pretty revolutionary for Jesus to do that. Um, in the New Testament, though, beyond just what Jesus said, he's called the God and Father of Jesus, and that's in Romans 15, 6, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 11, 31, and 1 Peter 1, 3, the God and Father of Jesus. But he's also called, called our God and Father. And uh, that, there's a handful of verses for that, Galatians 1, 4. Philippians 4.20, 1 Thessalonians 1.3 and 3.11 and 3.13. bunch of threes and ones, <laughs> that last one. Um, so this is, this is who God is, is God is revealed as Father. Um, so when we now can talk about a distinction between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, 
What does God the Father do? And when we say that, when we ask that question, we're talking about what's called the economic um, nature of the Trinity, the economic Trinity. And that doesn't mean who's got the checkbook in the Trinity. Um, economic in the older sense of the word was how things are done, the order of doing things. So when we talk about God the Father in the economic Trinity, what does God the Father do in the Trinity? Well, one of the first things, since we refer to him as God the Father, is he begets the Son. And so the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, so the Father begets the Son. Another thing he does is he and the, Spirit, he and the Son then send the Spirit. So when we talk about what God does in the, the economy of the Trinity, um, God sends the Son into the world. Uh, John 3.17, 10.36, and Hebrews 10.5. God sent the, his Son. Um, God sent his Spirit. That's John 15.26, and actually there's a whole bunch of other ones we could look at that uh, talk about God sending his Spirit. Like God sent his spirit on Saul, for example. So God is always said to send either the Son or the Spirit. Nowhere do we ever see the Spirit or the Son sending the Father. So the, the economic trinity is the Father is, we call him the first person of the trinity. He's kind of the, the leader of the trinity, if you will. He's the one who, um, who does certain things like that. So he sends his Son. He, he does those kind of things. Um, Remember last week we talked about the eternal functional subordination of the Son. So does that, what I just said, just disprove that, or prove the eternal functional subordination of the Son? Because the Father sends the Son. Does that make sense? The Father sends the Son. The Son never sends the Father. Therefore, the Son must be subordinate to the Father because the Father sent him. What does subordinate mean in that case? <laughs> That's the million-dollar question. Because did the son not want to go? And so he subordinated his will to the father and said, okay, I'll go. No, I didn't yeah. No. yeah. So that, that's why it, when we get to the eternal functional subordination question, the fact that the father sends the son, that the fact that the father is the, um, the head of the Trinity in the economic sense does not mean that the son is subordinate to the father or the spirit is subordinate to the father because they all want to do the same thing. So that, are you using it interchangeably with I think they're pretty much the same. To subordinate to somebody is to say, I'm going to let you be in charge, and um, so if you tell me to do something, I'll do it because you said so. Jesus is, but the eternally begotten Son is not, because God the Father and God the Son want to do the same thing. So it's not like the Father said, you have to go do this, and the Son said, okay, I'll go do it. It was the Trinity said, we'll do this. And the Trinity said, okay, we'll do this. So. Yeah, we'll talk about that next week, but that's Jesus submitting to the Father. The human Jesus, because there was a time when Jesus didn't exist. But there was never a time when the Son never existed. So the son is not subordinate to the father in that way, but in his humanity. So we'll talk about that next week. That's that's part of that whole incarnation thing that gets really hairy. <laughs> well, you can see Christianity is a made-up religion. People just made these things up because they, you know. <laughs> no. <laughs> 
If you can put the Trinity on a flannel board, it's a heresy. Guaranteed. <laughs> just the way that's going to work. Oh, Patrick. <laughs> oh, Patrick. So what is so in the in the the, econ, the economic Trinity, the relation between the members of the Trinity, the Father is the one who sends that kind of stuff. What is his role in salvation? What does he do when it comes to us? Well, um, his role in salvation is God elects unto salvation. So that comes from Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. Um, it is the Father who elected us unto salvation. So he elects. He gave his Son to make salvation possible, John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. Um, he draws sinners according to uh, John 6:44, So the Father draws sinners to people. He grants faith, Philippians 1:29, And he grants repentance, uh, 2 Timothy 2:25. So this is, this is the function. This is the role that the Father has. So one of the good questions when you're doing theology is, so what? You know, you can study these things, and it's like, okay, that's really interesting. So what? What do I have to do with that? What is that? How does that affect me? Well, what you see is when you have the economic trinity and the roles within the trinity, what you find is God is not chaos. He is ordered. As a matter of fact, uh, 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So the fact that there's relationships between the trinity and the Father is, is like the head of the trinity, he's the leader of it, and, and the, he sends the Son and the Spirit, and they do it together in harmony, shows that God is a God of order and peace. And he, he's working, the Trinity is working together to do these things. So that's the so what part is, it, it's, it's not, remember last week with the Norse gods? Um, let's go kill another person and make them into a world. I mean, it, it's not like that. This is, uh, there's none of the fighting within the Trinity. There's, there's that harmony. So that's the good news. So anything else in the Father? Any other questions or stuff? We'll spend a little bit more time on the Spirit. Because there's a lot more to fight about in the spirit. Okay, so here's what our statement of faith says for the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy. We believe that the Holy Spirit, in all that He does, glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. He convicts the world of its guilt, regenerates sinners, and in Him they are baptized into union with Christ and adopted as heirs in the family of God. He also indwells, illuminates, guides, equips, and empowers believers for a Christ-like living and service. So that's, that's how our statement of faith says it. This is what the Holy Spirit does. So let's talk about the divinity of the Holy Spirit first. Um, we got some scriptures that prove that this, the Holy Spirit is divine. I mean, in fact, aside from the fact that his name is Holy Spirit, um, in Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira claimed that they had sold property and gave all the money to the church. Uh, Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then later he says, you have not lied to men, but to God. So the Holy Spirit is God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? God dwells in temples. God dwells in temples by his spirit. His spirit is God dwelling in a temple. And um, Psalm 139.7, where can I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? This is the question. Only God is omnipresent. And so the parallelism in that verse says uh, your spirit and your presence is the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is that presence of God. 
139, 7. It had a 7 in there somewhere. So the Holy Spirit is divine. Um, one of the errors that people have is they think that the Spirit is a force. He's, he's not a person. But there are verses that really make that idea that he's just a force really hard. For example, Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. I don't think I have ever grieved electricity. I don't think I've ever grieved the wind. So these forces, these impersonal forces can't be grieved. Uh, it takes a person to be grieved. 2 Corinthians 3, uh, 17 and 18. Now the Lord is spirit. Um, now the Lord is the spirit. And he says also the Lord who is the spirit. So a force is not the Lord. The Lord is, is the spirit. The spirit is the Lord. So that's, again, a personal function. It's not something that an impersonal force would do is be the Lord. That's um, that's Rome, or Second uh, uh, Corinthians, so it's only uh, um, Kairos, 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 yeah. Um, Romans eight twenty six through twenty seven. The Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So intercession is a personal activity. I, I've never asked a chair to intercede for me. I've never wanted my car while it's running to intercede for me, but I would ask you guys to pray for me. So praying like that is, is a personal function. It's a personal act. And um, in Acts 13.2, when Paul and, and uh, Barnabas are called to be missionaries, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So forces don't speak. Forces don't have a desire to have somebody set apart. So this is these are indications that not only is the spirit God, but he's also personal and not just a, um, a force. Uh, so what about the Old Testament? What is where does this, the spirit show up in the Old Testament? Um, right at the beginning, Genesis 1, 2, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So at creation, there's the spirit. He's already involved. Um, Nehemiah 9.20, as Nehemiah is praying, he says, You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. So God's spirit was with the people in the Exodus. And so Nehemiah is, is thanking God that his good spirit was with them to instruct them. And then most notably in Judges, you see it quite a bit, the spirit will come upon somebody. And they'll be filled with the Spirit to go do some um, some important task to lead Israel or defend them or, or uh, take them through some big battle or something. And that was the Spirit coming upon them. So in the New Testament, we get a much clearer picture of the Spirit. We get much more detail about him. Um, as a matter of fact, the Spirit is the seal of the New Covenant. So a covenant has a seal. It has some sort of sign and some sort of seal. With Abraham, it was circumcision. Um, with Moses, it was the law. With David, it was, there wasn't one. <laughs> so, But with the new covenant, what we hear a number of times is that the spirit is the seal. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1.13. And like we said before, do not grieve the spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, Ephesians 4.30. So if you're in the new covenant, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. So you have the Holy Spirit because you're in the new covenant. Um, 
So here's the challenging question. And this is the, the big Christian theology question. What about the Old Covenant? What were believers, were believers filled with the Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant? The Spirit, at least the prophets, we know the Spirit carried the prophets along. So that they, Saul had the Spirit and then departed from him. Yeah, I don't think they were sealed. That word sealed, like it wasn't like permanently taking up residence in them. It just seemed to be something that would move, like you said, moving along or come upon them. They would move, leave. Mm-hmm. So, did all Old Covenant members have the Spirit? Yeah, there's a lot of evidence to support they didn't, since they tended to worship other gods quite a bit. Yeah. I think when he was getting that thinking in it, Moses and the camp. Mm-hmm. Israel people wound up prophesying when the Spirit moved upon them. So I forget which part, which part it was when God was doing something in the camp. God called... Um, Moses and Joshua up on the mountain, and he said, bring with you 70 elders. And some of the elders stayed back in the camp. And so when they started breaking out in tongues, then all of a sudden the elders that stayed back in the camp start breaking out in tongues. And, and Joshua says, hey, make them stop. <laughs> I wish we all did that, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the difference is Jesus promises um, – to send the Spirit upon us. It's good that I go away because then the Comforter will come. And so Jesus, when he goes and he ascends to heaven, then he sends his Spirit on his people. There's no promise like that in the Old Covenant. There's a lot of wishing that it was like that. God would tell Moses, circumcise your heart. You know, Don't, don't just circumcise your body. Circumcise your heart. You need a new heart. And so that's the, the glorious thing about the New Covenant is to be a member of the New Covenant, you have been circumcised in the heart by the Holy Spirit, sealed with the Holy Spirit. And, and that's how you're a member of the covenant. It's a better covenant. <laughs> Read Hebrews. It's a better covenant. This is the better way to go. So um, what about somebody who came to really believe, you know, a real legitimate believer in the Old Covenant? Like Moses, we know that he was saved, right? Because he shows up at the transfiguration talking to Jesus about his departure. Did he receive and be filled with the Holy Spirit the whole time of his life? Can't say, can you? We don't know. It's so hard because how does even anyone have faith in becoming a Messiah if that in itself wasn't enlightened by the Holy Spirit? Yeah, if the Spirit didn't give him. Yeah, and that's, I've had discussions with some. Um, particular theologians who want to argue about that. They say that if they're a believer, they have received the Holy Spirit. I was like, in exactly the same way we have? Yes, in exactly the same way. Show me. <laughs> well, how do they believe then? So, That's where they go to to receive God as a Sacrifice and, mm-hmm. and then us becoming the temple itself. So the presence of God was always in the, in the, the holy holies there, but now it's in us. Yeah, uh, that's my take on it. Is it's a better covenant. Um, 
So if somebody was, let's say there was a, an Israelite, not all Israelites were believers. You know, they would walk through and do the law stuff, but they didn't necessarily care about God. And you could see that because they would run off after Baal every chance they got. But there could be, there were believers who were faithful. I mean, like um, um, Anna in the temple when, when they come to um, circumcise Jesus. I mean, she's she's been waiting for and looking for this, and, and she's a prophetess and stuff. So I think the Holy Spirit came on some people in the Old Covenant, but that wasn't the mark of the Old Covenant. The mark of the New Covenant is you have received the Holy Spirit. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit could come on Saul and work in Saul for a while, and then God could take his Spirit away from Saul and put it on David. And now what? Now Saul's going insane, lobbing spears at anybody, and, and David is, is a man after God's own heart. Um, Elijah, when he's getting ready to depart, Elisha says, give me a measure of your spirit. And he says, that's a hard thing to ask. But if you see me when I go, then you will. And so God gave him the spirit that had been on Elijah, that kind of thing. So that's the, the benefit. I think it's a great benefit of the new covenant is we have the spirit. Um, and what does the spirit do for us then? Well, the spirit... I think is is the agent of regeneration in us. Um, that's that mark. The circumcision, new covenant circumcision, is that regeneration, that new heart we get. That's the work of the Spirit, um, and He seals us, and He He resides in us. That's why we're a temple, uh, like we heard yesterday. He also gives gifts. We have what we call spiritual gifts, and there's there's lists in the New Testament of spiritual gifts, and not all of them line up and are exactly the same. Um, and so I think. Since we don't have one exhaustive list, maybe we shouldn't be listing all the gifts of the Spirit. <laughs> maybe the Spirit will give the gifts that he decides to give in the way that he decides to give them. Um, and then something else is there's nothing that says, like, once you get the spiritual gift, that's it for life. You, you, that's it. You're done. That's the only spiritual gift you ever have. Sorry, I didn't receive hospitality, so, you know, you're on your own. Um, there may not be a need for you to be the hospitable person. But in the future, there might be. And so you might receive a gift of hospitality because there's a need in the body, that kind of thing. So we get a little funny. We evangelicals get a little funny when it comes to the spiritual gifts, I think. Um, I think we have to be a little bit more careful with it. Um, also, have you ever taken a spiritual gifts inventory? They ask, what do you like to do? You know what? Your gift is not for you. So what you like to do is immaterial. That may not be a spiritual gift. That may just be a bent. That may just be the way you work. You know who would know your, what spiritual gift you have? Everybody else in the body. They would say, oh, you have got a gift of hospitality. No, I don't. Yes, believe me, you do. You have got a gift of giving. No, I don't. Yes, believe me, you do. So th that's the kind of way that you can tell is, is the gifts aren't given for you to entertain you. They're given to you to serve the body of Christ. And so that's, I think, a better way to look at it. Um, so that's the kind of normal gifts. There are extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, when we talk about things like tongues, prophecy, healing, um, miracles, working of miracles, that kind of stuff. And so the question of do those gifts remain in the church? Are they, are they ongoing? Uh, there's a handful of ways to answer it. So the first way is the cessationists. And what they say is that those, those gifts um, were for a time period. And the best cessationist will say that doesn't mean God can't heal or God couldn't uh, work a miracle through you. 
what it means is you don't have a gift of miracle working that you will go around working miracles all the time. You don't have a gift of healing where you just go around and lay your hands on people and heal them all the time. Um, so that's what they're talking about. The best way to interpret cessationism is, is those extraordinary gifts, according to 2 Corinthians 12.12, 12, they were signs of apostleship. So those gifts where, where Peter could just walk down the street and heal people, that was a gift for Peter for that time that belonged to his apostleship. So when the apostles are gone, we don't have people with those gifts anymore. Um, and the other place that you can go to, to uh, for a proof text for that is 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So there's, there's a statement that, that these extraordinary gifts will end at some point. And um, then the big issue, the one that, that usually causes the biggest fight is, if somebody has a gift of prophecy, then you have to write down what they say and put it in your Bible. Because if God is speaking through somebody, that prophecy, it, it would contradict Sola Scriptura. It would say, that can, if somebody has a word from the Lord, then it, it must be inspired and has to go in the Bible. Yeah, will. Has every prophecy been written down in the first place? That, my friend, is the question. <laughs> I mean, there are several instances of prophets where it just says this guy was a prophet and doesn't really say what he said. Philip's daughters were prophetesses. Do we have what they said written down? Not that we know of. And I, I used that argument one time, and I was told, well, yes, we must have because it's got to be in the Bible. And I was like, dude, you just laugh yourself on that logic. <laughs> it, it has to be this way. Therefore, anything I see must be that. I was like, yeah, that's not right. John, that's what I call fail. I mean, maybe that's not necessarily prophecy. Those are the things that Jesus did, but he kind of says it's not all written down. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a cessationist. That's that's people who say that if you're talking in tongues, you're just speaking gibberish. You don't have a gift of tongues. That's all done. That's gone away with. Um, the next um, approach to the gifts is, is what's called charismatic. They believe all God's miraculous gifts are present and active today. Um, notably, they're manifested in, in speaking in tongues usually. That's That's where you see it the most. And um, this also can include the gift of prophecy. But the charismatics are a little bit more careful because what they'll say is the prophecy is subject to Scripture. So they're saying it doesn't contradict Sola Scriptura. And the, the best example I have seen of this is uh, Sovereign Grace Churches. Uh, I went to one in, in uh, Minnesota one time, and they had a time in the service where they had an open mic and people could come up and, and give a word. But they would talk to an elder first, and the elder would say, what's the word that you have for us today? And they'd tell him, you know, I think that's more, you know, personal thing, so why don't you hang on to that? And somebody else would come up and say, well, the Lord told me, and they would say, okay, go share that at the mic. And so the person would come up and, and share their word in the mic. But this, it's subject to the elders and subject to the Bible. It doesn't, you, you couldn't have somebody come up and say something that contradicts the Bible. That, that's clearly, obviously wrong. Um, I think there was something else I was going to say on that. Yeah, so, so charismatics. Um, Pentecostal is a little bit further um, over. Um, they believe in something called the baptism of the Holy Spirit that is separate from conversion. It's uh, called the second blessing. And so you could be a believer 
and have not received the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the real mature spiritual person receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit and then can uh, speak in tongues and, and have all these miraculous signs um, showed. All, all the gifts are active in the church today. And uh, believers should seek these gifts. You should be actively looking to receive these gifts. And in some of the worst of Pentecostalism, they would say, if you haven't, then you're not saved. So the gentleman that witnessed to me uh, and led me to Christ, um, he came back over to my house a couple weeks later, and he was talking to me about being baptized. And I was like, I was baptized as a baby. He said, yeah, but did you speak in tongues? Uh, no. <laughs> that was a while ago. He said, no, so you have to, when you get baptized, you have to come out of the water speaking in tongues. I went, that doesn't sound right. I'm a brand new believer, right? I mean, like maybe a month old. I'm like, that doesn't sound right to me. I said, what happens if I don't come up out of the water speaking in tongues? He said, then they'll dunk you again. I said, then eventually I will come out of the water speaking in tongues. <laughs> you keep waterboarding me. Eventually I'm going to do what you want, you know. <laughs> so that, that's Pentecostalism. And uh, they don't have a problem with prophecy and they don't have a problem with it uh, being on equal footing with Scripture, um, sometimes even being above Scripture because it's a new word from the Lord. And then there's the chickens. <laughs> Me. <laughs> I, I call. I prefer. It's often called open but cautious. I prefer non-normative, but it's it, that's a more sterile-sounding phrase. The idea there is, yes, of course, God can still work, and yes, of course, the Holy Spirit is present and He can do whatever He wants, but. Those charismatic gifts are not part of every New Testament church. Corinth is where you hear about the most of them. So it doesn't, you don't see Paul writing to the Philippians and saying, I want you all to speak in tongues. Or uh, you should all desire prophecy. So it's not, it doesn't appear to be universal. And these things can happen, but they're not normally, they're not a normal manifestation of the Spirit. If you look at all the Bible has to say about the manifestations, manifestations of the Spirit, it's peace, love, joy. Those kind of things. Those are the normal ones. So that's not saying that those things can't happen. That's what I mean by being a chicken. <laughs> and, and where I would say, where I would argue you would see those extraordinary gifts is on the mission field at the cutting edge where the gospel is going out. And we saw when we went to uh, Burma, we saw some, some miracles happen. And we weren't, we weren't looking for them. We weren't trying to stir it up or anything. It's just God showed up in power because this was a new work that was going on there. So that's, that's my take on it is um, open but cautious. Any thoughts or questions or another take on the miraculous gifts that I didn't cover there? It's interesting that we call a certain group of them miraculous. Yeah. Now has self-control when they didn't before, or cares about self-control when they didn't before. That's like the heart of it. You know, yeah. a, a lifetime of enduring it. A lifetime of <laughs> Yeah, or um, just the act of being converted. You know, I, I heard the gospel, I don't know how many times, and it just went right past me. I had no connection to it. I had no idea why Jesus meant anything to anybody, and... And then one time I heard the gospel and I believed it. And it wasn't because I was so smart or I finally figured it out or something. It was the Holy Spirit opened my eyes. Um, for spring break, I went to uh, Daytona Beach and I woke up on Easter morning in somebody's hotel room on the floor. I don't remember whose room it was. 
But I'm sitting there, I go, you know, I should do something spiritual. It's Easter. And so I pulled Gideon's out of the nightstand I was leaning against. And what am I going to read? Well, I'm Timothy, so I'll read Timothy. And I started reading First Timothy. I don't have a clue what that means. Slap, put it back. Couldn't, didn't make a lick of sense to me. But years later, about six or seven years later, when I read the book of Acts, it was alive and it made a difference. That was the work of the Holy Spirit. That's a miracle, you know. So, so which one are you? Join me in being a chicken. <laughs> so expect it a little bit more than not expect it. I've been to a lot of, I've been to this whole spectrum as far as churches go and been a deep part of, including this last one. Um, and having gone, and I know you guys have done missions work too, but it, what I've seen consistently is the the more showy gifts, the, the gifts that I would call signs. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I tend to describe these kinds of gifts. Tend to follow the move of the gospel in an area that is dark. Mm-hmm. So it kind of tends to be a frontier thing, mm-hmm. where these signs appear more in frontier areas where the gospel is breaking through, especially dark things like paganism and things mm-hmm. like that. That's what I've seen consistently and heard from a lot of reports, but that's kind of my general thought, is that where God needs to establish his authority spiritually in that way, he mm-hmm. does it, and when he doesn't need to do it, and he's doing it through other means, he does that. Yep. It, just what I've seen yeah. and experienced. Yeah, and personally, I've, I've never been really Pentecostal, but I've been most of the other ones at some point or another. Um, when Lisa and I first got saved, we were part of a Bible study group that was charismatic Roman Catholics. Mm-hmm. And so we just prayed in the Spirit and, you know, praying in tongues and stuff just because that's what you do. And when we got here, we, had, we attended, a, um, I think it was St. Mary's, and uh, they had a charismatic group, and we went with them, and I think we went to the, one of their meetings, and we were there for like an hour, and all they did was tell you, you got to pray for the Holy Spirit, pray for the gift of tongues. And I'm like, you guys, I, I didn't say anything, but I'm thinking, I speak in tongues, I pray in tongues all the time, and you guys are trying to push me into it. <laughs> and it was just like, maybe that's not supposed to be the biggest thing in the world, is, is praying in tongues. And then we went to a charismatic mass at the um, Knights of Columbus, and uh, it was a normal mass, and there was a priest doing it. And, you know, the high point of the mass is the is communion, is the Lord's Supper. And so we get to the Lord's Supper, and people are lining up to receive it, and the priest starts slaying people in the spirit. And people are, are breaking out in tongues, and, and it was just chaos. And I remember sitting there going, I just read, like, in 1 Corinthians, this is exactly what you're not supposed to do. <laughs> and I'm looking at the, at the priest going, you got to do something about this. And he's just part of it. And it was just really like, this doesn't feel right to me. So that's when I kind of went, okay, I don't want to do that anymore. And uh, Yeah, yeah, that's what I've seen as, as well as um, some of the more Pentecostal stuff can go nuts really fast. Um, well, they tend to lose their grip on theology really quickly. Mm-hmm. And that chaos doesn't just reign in the service, but everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, well, and then I went, when I became Reformed, I went cessationist because that's apparently the right one. And uh, and when I started digging into that, I'm like, so wait a minute, let's let's go back here a second. Cessationist. For prophecies, they will pass away. Okay, prophecy's going to stop. For tongues, they will cease. Okay, tongues have stopped. Knowledge. Wait a minute. 
Um, unless you're going to convince me that that's something different than knowledge, then you've got a problem picking that as your, your proof text. Is if prophecies and tongues passed away, the knowledge did too. So that's not a comfortable place to be either. So. And do we talk about like when that first Corinthians 13 8 is happening? It says when the perfect comes. So okay. put your seatbelts on for a second. You know what the perfect is? The completed canon of the New Testament. Yep, that's what that is. I'm like, you gonna want sh- you want to show me that from the scriptures? How that's the perfect? Yeah, well. Uh, I'm just gonna say that I usually assumed that that was in the context of you know post revelation, all the prophecies have faded away because they're done, they've been fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And of course, at that point, you don't need the other things much either. Well, it, it depends on what we mean by knowledge here. Yeah. Because it's just knowledge. It's not like um, a word of knowledge or something like that. So it's not one of the more um, other ones. So that's why I like being a chicken on this and go, well, I don't know what it means, so I'm not going to (laughs) say. So so if I'm not going to rule this one out, then I'm not going to rule these other two out either. Um, But I just don't expect it. I don't expect to, to wake up tomorrow morning and speak in tongues. So are we in the context of... Are we supposed to read those as gifts or just generally prophecies, tongues, and knowledge? Or is it like gift of prophecies, gift of tongues, gift of knowledge? I think we assume it's talking about it as a gift because what comes in in chapter 14 is he starts talking about spiritual gifts. Um, In chapter 13, he's only bringing these up and saying, in comparison to love, these are nothing. So I think that's a better way to read that in context. So then the, the next one I want to bring up is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This is a confusing one, too. Mark chapter 3. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Mark three twenty-eight through 30. So some people think that the... the um, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit could only be done when Jesus was on the earth um, because you would have to see Jesus working a miracle and, um, and claim that he had an unclean spirit, that he was doing it by that. That's one way to interpret it. Um, some say that the sin is, attri- is to attribute the work of the Spirit to Satan, to see somebody doing something, a, a real miracle, and saying, well, the devil did that. Um, and some think that it's the sin of unbelief to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to not believe. And, of course, you can't be saved because you don't believe. There's no salvation without faith, and so then that's unpardonable because you have to believe. Um, and uh, some claim that it's a real sin that can only be committed by a born-again believer and that in it they lose their salvation forever. So somebody was once a believer, they blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and then they, uh, they don't believe anymore. So a couple of things to think about uh, in this in context. Um, the one who commits it has an understanding of who Jesus is and what he is doing. In other words, you don't go, well, I don't believe in the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that Jesus ever lived. And so did I just commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? No, because you don't believe any of that. <laughs> you're, not, you're not, you know, accepting any of that. You don't believe in miracles or anything. That's not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. 
which is good news because then you can still be saved. Um, they, he, he was working a miracle. He was casting out a demon, and the, the people said he does that by the power of Beelzebub. In other words, they're watching God's miracle. They don't, they believe that it really happened. They see that this demon possessed person has actually been liberated by, you know, by Jesus. But they look at it and they attribute it to Satan, not to God. And instead of accepting who Jesus is through that attesting work of the Spirit, they, they attribute it to evil. They say that what you're doing is evil. So, I don't think that you can commit that sin accidentally. And I'll tell you what, I've heard on, on call in radio programs on, on Christian radio, um, I, I can remember a handful of times people would call in just terrified that they had committed the, the um, unpardonable sin. And um, clue number one that you haven't, you care. You're really worried about that. The person who commits the unpardonable sin doesn't care about it because they don't believe in that. They, they think it's, it's Satan and working those things, so they, they're not really too worried about it. Um, there's a website, I don't know if it's still up or not, um, for people who are deconverting. And so if you're deconverting, then you, this website, you can go and commit the unpardonable sin by blaspheming the Holy Spirit and therefore be damned forever so you can never go back to being a Christian. And all you have to do is say you don't believe in the Holy Spirit. I'm like, time out. That is not the unpardonable sin. <laughs> that's, that's a very pardonable sin to say I don't believe in the Holy Spirit. The unpardonable sin would be I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe he's active. I believe he works. And I believe he is really part of the Trinity. And I think he's Satan. That would be more in line with what the unpardonable sin is. So um, what do you guys think? What do you, what do you make of the unpardonable sin? It, it's a confusing topic, really. I guess I maybe I'm a little confused by blasphemy against it. Like, I, don't, I guess I don't understand that, that aspect of it. Bad-mouthing it? Like, I don't understand that. Well, in, in context, um, he says, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit uh, never has forgiveness, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So they're looking at Jesus working in the power of the Holy Spirit, and the blasphemy that they, they announced was, we see he's doing it, we recognize he has power, and that power is satanic. Okay, yeah. that. that's, that's how that particular one plays out, I think. Yeah, but it can really tie some believers up in knots. I think I did it. I think I, I think I said something bad. Like, well, the fact that it bothers you means you didn't. <laughs> Just apologize. God's forgiving. Do you think that there is any cross referencing to in Hebrews talking about how how uh, basically if you have received Christ and then trod him underfoot. There is no longer a sacrifice. Yeah, you're talking Hebrews 6, where it says if you've tasted and, and then turn away, there's no hope for you returning because you'd have to crucify Christ all over again. Yeah. And then there's another one later on. I don't remember where it's at. It says um, that uh, – oh, I can't remember exactly how it says it. something about – he who has bought you and you trample his blood underfoot or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I'm missing two of yeah. Four, six, chapter six, verse four. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, 
and the powers of the age to come, and that have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own heart and holding them up to yeah, and then the, one, the later one, Trample Underfoot, I can't remember where it is, but um, that's, that is the problem of apostasy. So if you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, can you become an apostate? And if not, then why do we have a word for it? So one of the things I think about the Hebrew 6 one is it's have tasted, they have partaken in the spirit they have and it's like they got this close and they've tasted those things it doesn't say that they were sealed with the holy spirit it doesn't say that they've they've you know closed with christ in that way it says that you, they got you get up there and you can kind of get inoculated to christianity because you see enough of it and you but you never really quite get there and so if you've got everything that christianity has to offer and you go yeah i don't want that what else is there <laughs> you know how can I restore you to repentance if what if everything I've laid out before you is not what you're interested in? I'd have to crucify Christ again and come up with a new way for you to be saved. That's how I read that. Is is that's a person who you would think they're a believer. They they go to church, you know, quote Bible, that kind of stuff. They've tasted, they've been right there, and then they go, Yeah, I don't want this. You know, just yeah, not interested. Um that's that's where I think he's going with that one. The the more troubling one is the trampled underfoot one. Yeah, it sounds like Jesus died for them. They received forgiveness of sins, and then they trampled it underfoot. Yeah, and and that's the more startling one. How much worse punishment do you think would be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? So the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And outrage the spirit. That's another good one for proof of the spirit as a person. You know, the, the wind doesn't get outraged. Right. Can you hear? Um, therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, or will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks the word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Either in this age or in the age to come. So also putting the distinction between Jesus and the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. at the same time. Yeah. But that would imply that blaspheming against Jesus doesn't count as this sin, but blaspheming against the Spirit is. Yeah. I think it's because Jesus was doing those things in the Spirit. You know, he, he was baptized and the Spirit came upon him and then he went out in the wilderness and then he comes back from the wilderness from temptation and he does all those miraculous things by the power of the Spirit. So, um, yeah, so that's that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and it's not an easy one, um, not an easy one to, to, to work out. Um, and so I would be really careful pointing at somebody and going, hey, blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You're damned for eternity. You know, I'm not going to share the gospel with you because you can't be saved. Um, I, I, I think it's a warning. It's a really strong warning, real clear. Same thing with Hebrews 6. It's a really clear warning. Is This is not something to play with. You know, this isn't something to be fickle about. No, well, I'll try it this week and see. You know, I'll, I'll be a Christian this week and not next week. And um, you can get anesthetized or, or um, 
inoculated against it. And so the next time you hear the gospel, it's not as beautiful because, yeah, I know that stuff. I don't need that. I don't need to hear that anymore. Uh, what else can we do? What, what comes next? That kind of thing. So, again, our so what question for the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Um, why it's important is I think it's, it's incredible that God draws near to us, not through an impersonal force, but through the third person of the Trinity. It's like the incarnation, which we'll talk about next week. God didn't just, like, appear in the sky, you know, as a hologram or something. He took on a human nature to come and be with us. And so this, the, the, the role of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life, the, the arrival of Jesus in flesh, talks about how personal, how intimate God wants to be with his people. He's, he's that close. He's not this far-off, distant God. And so um, the fact that he seals us, that, he, that the third person of the Trinity is the thing that seals us, that the third person of the Trinity is the seal of the new covenant, I mean, that just shows how... how dear this is to God, that he, this is something that he wants to happen. So this, this salvation that we have comes through all three persons of the Trinity. They're all engaged in it. And, and it's in a very personal way, not a, a far off. Um, what's he quoting uh, Deuteronomy? The word is not far from you, but it's, it's on your lips. You know, that's the idea that God is that close. So let's sing. Um, and I'm going to stop recording because I don't think any should have